message broker systems decouple the consumers and producers of a message channel. In previous shows, we've explored ZeroMQ, PubNub, Apache Kafka, and Nats. In this episode, we talk about another message broker, Apache Pulsar. Pulsar is an open-source distributed PubSub message system originally created at Yahoo. It was used to scale products with high volumes of users, such as Yahoo Mail. There are three components of a Pulsar deployment. The Pulsar Broker, which handles the message brokering. Apache Bookkeeper, which handles the durable storage of the messages. And Apache Zookeeper, which manages the distributed coordination. Louis Kaneshiro joins the show to describe how Apache Pulsar works and how it compares to other messaging systems like Apache Kafka. Lewis is the CEO of Streamlio, a company that builds messaging and stream processing systems for enterprises, and it uses Pulsar in its core product. Lewis Kaneshiro is the CEO of Streamlio. Lewis, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks so much, Jeff. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the time and excited to talk about uh, Streamlio. Absolutely. Let's start with Pulsar. So Apache Pulsar is this messaging system. Explain the purpose of a messaging system. Sure. Purpose of a messaging system is really connecting data, con- connecting users of data in a very flexible manner. And so what a messaging system allows is data to come in from really any source. And so we think about data coming in uh, with our customers as sources such as mobile apps. Uh, It could be generated from sensor data. It could be user generated. It could be eyeballs. It could be clicks. And a lot of data that is coming into a messaging system really has a destination. And the destination will be a consumer of that data. And the consumer of the data can change. It can be a number of different users downstream that are actually unknown at at the time that the data is being generated. And so a messaging system really allows for a a layer that allows developers to access that data in a very flexible manner. Mm -hmm. And there are two messaging models. We've explored these in recent episodes about Kafka and Nats. There's the queuing model, there's the published subscribe model. Can you describe why these two types of messaging exist? Sure. We would we actually take the unified approach at, at Pulsar where we unify queuing and PubSub or, or streaming. So the reason why both exist is um, up until now, actually up until Pulsar, those systems are serving different use cases in queuing order does not matter. What really matters is that an event or a message that's traveling your queuing system really has a requirement to be processed. And it doesn't matter whether or not it's processed immediately before or after any certain event. And so as a result, you can have a number of different clients that can process these events in parallel. And so what you can do is scale out the performance of a queuing system by having many more customers ingest that data, but the order doesn't matter. And that's very different than PubSub type systems where the order does matter. And so uh, PubSub, you had mentioned Kafka, but we also you know, have a very similar model with Pulsar, which allows that data in order to be replayed, played to different consumers. 
and serve use cases where the the ordering does matter and the history matters and orders matters. So with Pulsar, the the model that that we have it that we've developed really allows both queuing and streaming use cases. And what's exciting about that with customers and and really groups that are familiar with queuing and streaming systems, they usually have multiple systems that are dealing with both use cases. And so queuing, you could have ActiveMQ or different messaging queuing type systems, RabbitMQ, RocketMQ, those types of systems come to mind. And then streaming use cases, uh, what enterprises are doing is bringing in a separate system, uh, typically Kafka, you mentioned NATs as well. But the way that we approach the space is these are enterprise use cases. And so from the start, from day one, Pulsar was designed to handle both. And so we simply have queuing semantics where consumer groups can connect on to a topic. Uh, so not deep, delving too deeply into vocabulary, but you know, a topic is simply that, that messaging uh, type, of, type of system. And you can either have a, a queuing use case where messages are uh, processed out of order. It can be scaled to, to parallelize and, and really deliver on whatever performance is needed. And then once a message is processed, it can be deleted. And so as a result, you don't have a, a queue that continues to grow indefinitely. You're actually able to, to consume out of that queue and delete the data if that's needed. And on the uh, pub-sub type of model, what you can do is, is have the data remain in the system. And so that's the other very exciting thing about Pulsar, where it's a true event storage system underlying Pulsar. We can get into architecture, but underlying Pulsar is a true stream storage system called Apache Bookkeeper. And that allows users to store data uh, really indefinitely. And so simply by adding nodes, you can, you can have a streaming system that has uh, as, lo- as, as much data as you would like to retain. What that allows us to do with enterprises and use cases is really explore both queuing and streaming in a single system that, that we feel is really the future of, of event-driven architecture at enterprise scale. We will explore that architecture in a bit. I want to start from a little bit more foundational level. There are people out there listening that probably just think of application development in terms of request response. You've got a client device, maybe it's your laptop, maybe it's your smartphone. You do something like click the like button on Facebook and you just imagine that that request gets hit to Facebook's servers and it executes some like method and then the like liking target has been liked and it gets updated on your client device. It's just a request response. And in that mindset, the listener might not be sure, why would you need a messaging system? My, my client device is just making a request to the server and a response is being received. When does an application model need a messaging system? That's a good question. When we think about it, it's really a matter of, of scale. And so when you have a very, very, very simple query, you know, queue and response, basic question response, 
And the system is built around uh, only that architecture. You want to click a light button, you want to hit a server, and you want to come back. Um, there's really no flexibility in that model. And so let's say you have business intelligence, you know, a, a BI use case where that, inf- that, that click data also wants to be analyzed in some sense. That would actually require either a, a, a server-side analytics, and so you want to be storing all, the, all of the click data and the response data in order to get uh, analytics on that data, or on, on maybe the client side, you need some me- method to be analyzing that data. And so what's interesting is in that response is it's, it's difficult to scale that type of architecture, and it, it, it breaks that flexibility mindset that I talked in, in the beginning. And so when you put a messaging system, a true messaging system in that type of query response, pattern, what you're allowed to do is is now use that that topic, that data stream, to do a lot of different things. And a lot of those different things is really where enterprises are gaining value with their, their streaming data. And so some types of value around that is analyzing. So having real-time or streaming analytics, you could do a lot of different things with that clickstream data, with, with data scientists and being able to analyze that data, being able to enrich and augment that data. And so what a messaging system allows you to do, and, and Apache Pulsar in particular, is you're allowed to create just-in-time transformations on that data. And so as the clickstream data comes in, you can augment it with a number of different services within your enterprise. You could be hitting a number of different databases, for example. You can be doing predictions on, say, gender or maybe different user-generated data, make a prediction on on what that user is doing and be able to deliver back a much richer experience to the user rather than having a a very simple, almost static architecture that is a query response. Right. And also you don't... So so you mentioned the... You can have basically the consumer and the producer having different loads. So for example, the you know, if we're talking about the like button, maybe you have thousands and thousands of people that are liking stuff throughout the day and there's different workloads, there's different workload capacities throughout the day. So the number of people liking stuff throughout the world may vary and it's useful to have this scalable buffering infrastructure so that if you have the server that is reading those likes and processing those likes, the server may not necessarily have to scale up or down. You just have the messaging infrastructure in between scale up and down. The messaging infrastructure buffers all those likes, and the server that's processing those likes just processes them as it would like to. And in addition to that, then since you have this buffer that is containing all the requests, if there's other consumers that you want to respond to that like button, other than just the the like like processing server, you can have these other consumers. And this is something that the 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 guest I had on who was talking about Nats was was emphasizing was the fact that you don't ever know, you don't ever want to assume who is the recipient of a message? Maybe there's other people within Facebook. You know, if you're talking about the Facebook designing the Facebook infrastructure, maybe there's other people that want to know every time a like gets submitted to Facebook servers. Maybe there's people in the analytics team or people in the 
the reactions team that want to know about this data, if you share the messaging system between them, then they can both use that infrastructure, that uh, that queue of of information, and that that's kind of what you're why you're talking about the storage system underlying this. So now that we've outlined the the basic idea of a queuing system. Why was Pulsar originally built? Sure, and, and that's a great overview. And, and what's exciting about messaging systems in general, as you point out, Jeff, is, is there's a lot that you can do with this incoming data. You know, Traditionally, in the, the era of slow data, as we like to call it, that data was stored. The data comes in, it, it's stored in a database, maybe a, a data lake, and it, it takes a lot of time in order to get that data out and, and actually deliver value on that data. And so when you have a decoupled system and many different teams are able to use that data, either in real time as it's being generated or streaming uh, across, an, across an organization and having multiple teams use that same data, that data becomes very valuable. And that's really where, where Pulsar came into being. When Pulsar was created, there were a, a number of existing uh, streaming solutions and queuing solutions that were already on the market or really open source. And so, you know, as you know, Apache Kafka, as you mentioned before, was open source about eight years ago, you know, kind of Hadoop era technology where it is focused on on use cases, uh, moving data, data motion that were kind of eight, eight or nine years ago. And so when Pulsar was created, it was really created to solve enterprise grade use cases from day one. And so what that means is, you know, for you, for listeners that, that don't know Pulsar too much, it was created in Yahoo and open sourced about a year and a half ago. And at Yahoo, it runs all real-time, basically all, all real-time messaging uh, services at Yahoo. But at, at the beginning, Pulsar was really created to focus on a number of different capabilities. One is durability. So data is rec- replicated and synced uh, to disk. Uh, ordering and deliver gu- delivery guarantees. It was focused on, but but an enterprise grade salute, enterprise grade requirement that Pulsar solved for Yahoo was this idea of geo-replication. So having multiple data centers and and needing that data to be available at all data centers uh, immediately is a very different use case. It's a very different system that's needed. And and that was a day one requirement of Pulsar. The other is multi-tenancy. And so this idea of a single cluster, a single messaging cluster serving the entire enterprise. So you can think of, you know, a global and enterprise-wide Pulsar cluster is needed when you consider the number of teams that want to access this data. So going back to you know, really why messaging systems exist and the idea of why we're excited about messaging systems now is the idea that number of, a number of teams want to access this data. And so having multi-tenancy as a day one requirement really required a, a new system. And so that's where Pulsar was created. So zero data loss, uh, geo-replication at, at Yahoo scale and multi-tenancy. And, and that is the, the development of Pulsar as, as really serving both queuing and, and pub-sub or streaming use cases. Mm-hmm. So what happens when a Pulsar cluster is spun up for the first time? So what happens when a Pulsar cluster is spun up for the first time? Um, Pulsar is, is actually leveraging another Apache project, Apache Bookkeeper. And so Bookkeeper, as I mentioned, is true distributed stream storage. And so what that means is very fast, zero data loss, uh, geo-replicated system. 
And so when Pulsar is spun up, what it's doing is connecting to Bookkeeper and Bookkeeper, underlying Bookkeeper is, is also connecting to Apache Zookeeper. And so when it's spun up, what Pulsar does is enable, there's many different ways to spin up a Pulsar cluster, but what Pulsar allows you to do with multi-tenancy is to have uh, a namespace. And so with that namespace, you're allowed to select uh, what region, what cluster, and what team that topic is being written to and, and accessible to. And so that actually allows uh, security, authentication, everything that you would expect in an enterprise system is spun up when, when you spin up a, a single Pulsar cluster. As you begin to connect up, you have producers and consumers per topic, and that's per namespace. You can obviously spin up a, a default namespace, and that's that's something that we added from, from Prospect Demand because what they really wanted was a system that, that was as simple to use uh, as possible. So you can have default namespaces, but you can also connect up uh, with, with a multi-tenant system, which allows isolation at all levels. The three components of a Pulsar deployment that are worth addressing, the Pulsar broker, the which handles the message brokering, Apache Bookkeeper, which handles the storage, and Zookeeper, which enables the distributed coordination Describe these three components in more detail and outline their purposes. Sure. So Pulsar's architecture is is really a separated broker, as you mentioned, and bookie system. And so the broker system, what that's allowing is, is really a separation of the read and write path. And so as a broker ingests data, it, it connects up with Zookeeper, which is managing the bookies. And the bookies manage the write path to disks. And that's physical disk F-syncing to disk in a segment-based architecture. And within this, the Zookeeper cluster is simply managing the coordination and, and metadata of the system itself. But what this architecture allows is the independent scaling of brokers and bookies. And that really comes into the cost equation. And so, again, enterprise requirements from day one really require the system to be able to scale, uh, scale efficiently. And so as more and more data comes into the system, and if there's use cases that require longer and longer storage, What's key about Pulsar is we simply need to add nodes and bookkeeper nodes, and, and that's really bookie nodes, which are much cheaper than adding brokers. And so with that architecture, you're able to scale and we're able to scale without rebalancing. And so we, we hear that that's pain points with other systems, but it also allows to, to scale basically as the enterprise scales, or for example, if you have spiky data, you could have spiky increased data events around, say, the Super Bowl, that with other systems, it's required to do you know, very costly rebalancing or partitioning of, of nodes. Uh, with, with Pulsar and the separation of architecture, it's, it's very simple to, to add nodes. And so that's the separation of, of brokers on Pulsar that are managing rights to bookies. Okay. So help me understand, what happens when a message is sent from a publisher. So if I if I'm 
you know, uh, maybe you could outline a, a typical use case uh, for for the pub sub system. I mean, you, or or the queuing system. I guess it's unified in in the Pulsar world. But just describe when a message is sent from a publisher and consumed by a consumer. Walk me through the different steps that happen. Sure. When a producer writes a message, it's it's going to write that message to a topic in Pulsar. And again, that topic is is in a namespace. But when it's written to a topic in Pulsar, the broker will then take care of connecting with a, a, a bookie in, in Bookkeeper. And the bookie will take care of replicating and writing that uh, not only message, but that segmented message to disk. And what we mean by segmented message is that that message can be efficiently stored um, and replicated up to, you know, basically a configure a number of times. And so you could have, uh, in, a, in a particular use case, and let's call it a financial use case where the message being written is an actual transaction, uh, that message needs to be acknowledged uh, when it is, is written to a disk and, and replicated a certain number of minimum time. And so what the system can do is, is configure, say, five writes, and a message will be written up to, well, the message will be written five times, but you can configure the minimum acknowledged number. And so you could have a number of five writes, but minimum acknowledgement of three, for example. And so once the, the bookie successfully writes to disk three times, then it will reply back with an acknowledgement. And so once that message is, is written to disk, you can have a consumer consume that message. And the, the consuming message will, will again access a broker, and that broker will, will access the bookie written to disk. You can also have that message in, in memory, and so it can be a very, very fast consume. And so the great thing about Pulsar and, and writing to Bookkeeper is that we have latencies on the order of you know, sub five millisecond latencies at the top end. <laughs> and so very, very fast writes to disk. And so you have a very efficient zero data loss solution for any message that's acknowledged. And so we can delve deeper into the, the architecture, but that's the route. The producer writes to a broker, the broker then writes to a bookie, which is replicated to a configurable amount of time. And the consumer then will consume that message again by accessing the broker. So producers and consumers can be served by different brokers, which again allows for very fast reason writes. When there's a high volume of producers that are writing to the Pulsar cluster, is there any scalability that needs to happen? Any scalability that, that needs to happen. If the the producer is, is writing too fast, you can obviously scale up the, the number of brokers. If the the bookies are, are writing to disk and disks are filling up, you can, again, like increase the number of disks simply by adding nodes. And so it was really built to be very efficient to to scale <laughs> architecturally. And so, you know, on, on that, on that, in that sense, you know, producer rights, it, it is easy to, to scale up and consumers as well. So there is this typical use case of enrichment. So if I, for example, have a Fitbit, I'm wearing a Fitbit and it's broadcasting my location data on a regular basis to some server 
and I want to enrich that lat. Let's say it's lat long coordinates. It's just broadcasting lat long coordinates to the server, and on the server side, they would want to enrich those lat long coordinates with location data, for example. And this is a typical example of when you would want to do en- enrichment, and it's a typical example of when you would want to buffer up your your messages in the PubSub system and do the enrichment and then perhaps write it back to another topic, the enriched version of the topic. So when the consumer actually consumes the message, it has enriched data like the zip code and the state and all the other location data that goes along with lat long, but maybe you would not want to have broadcasted from the original message from the Fitbit to the the cluster. So this use case of enrichment seems like a great purpose for these these rich pub sub queuing systems. Like we've talked about it in in the our shows about Kafka. So if I wanted to enrich messages by reading a topic and then writing to a new topic, can you can you do that in Pulsar? And what are the best practices for doing it? Yeah, absolutely. That's, a, a, again, as you mentioned, a, a very common use case. And so with Pulsar, we, we have functionality called Pulsar Functions, which serves as lightweight compute. We like to call it stream-native computing. And so what this does is fill up uh, or really solve almost a microservices type architecture. And so as the data comes in from the Fitbit, that has user data, but, but maybe not lat long data, that data wants to be in, enriched, you know, perhaps the enrichment data is in an Aerospike database, for example. And so as the message comes in and is buffered up within the same system and, and actually on the broker itself, Pulsar Functions is in Java and Python. And so what you can do is per message query a, a database if, if needed, have that result come back within the same system. Enrich the data, so maybe join that tuple together with uh, lat long and whatever other data you want. You know, perhaps gender, uh, user data. You know, what what status or a class that user is, and then write to an output topic downstream. And that topic can be based on. It could be even based on a machine learning model, uh, which is a very common design pattern that we're seeing. And so within the same system, and, and that's pretty key with with pulsar functions in the way that we've designed it was to be as simple as possible for a new developer to come onto the system, not need to learn any new API, not to need to, to know functional programming, for example, and be able to solve that exact use case. Enrich data right out to a topic or any number of topics um, or a topic that is predicted based on some machine learning model that, that pulsar functions is, is able to access maybe in a switch statement, and, and have that data then, that, that enriched data, be accessible downstream. And so that use case is, is something that we see more and more often. It gets back to the entire idea of how multiple teams may want to enrich uh, incoming data for their own use cases and then write that data to another topic and expose that, that enriched data to other teams downstream. Okay. I want to get into some comparisons because we've done shows, like I said, on Kafka. We've done shows on Nats and Google PubSub. How do you look at Pulsar's place in the market of these different distributed queuing systems? When we look at the market and and going back to when and why Pulsar was created to address some of the limitations of of systems that were available and, and actually quite popular at the time, 
One of the core differentiators that we see is, is Pulsar accessing true distributed stream storage in, in Bookkeeper. What that allows is a distributed event storage system that, that allows any amount of history to be stored. And by solving storage first, Jeff, what we found is that it's actually unlocking a number of new use cases that, you know, quite, quite frankly, with, uh, uh, w- with limited storage would be very difficult. And so, you know, for example, since you want direct comparisons with Apache Kafka, we hear it's very difficult to store, you know, many, many days worth of data or store or increasingly store data. Uh, so with Pulsar, again, what you do is you simply add nodes. You can scale up the, the duration in which you want to store data and what we're finding is uh, users are, are using longer and longer data periods to train and retrain machine learning models, for example. And another request that we've had that we're delivering on very shortly is this idea of tiered storage. And so what tiered storage allows is data accessed in a streaming fashion, a pub-sub fashion, can simply exist in Pulsar, but as data rolls off or, or becomes older, let's call it, you know, after two or three weeks, we can configure that data to be automatically stored in a tiered fashion externally, for example, in S3. And so what this allows is a developer, she can access the same data with the same streaming paradigm, but that data can exist in S3, in Bookkeeper, you know, slash Pulsar, and be available without changing the paradigm. And so compared to other systems, we find that's unique because with other systems, you're actually required to unload the data yourself or manage the data yourself rather than you know, accessing this idea of any amount of streaming data over any amount of time. And, and again, that's geo-replicated, accessible in, in any region. And so because we're a replicated system, that's where we, we find the, the comparison most often against Kafka. But we do see uh, comparisons on the queuing side, you know, call it to ActiveMQ and RabbitMQ. But again, where, where we're coming from is uh, a, a very flexible, unified system. We know that NATS is, is a newer system, although we don't see it as often because, uh, and stop me if I'm wrong, but we, we don't see the replicated the storage of data yet. And so, you know, the, the NATS IO use cases, we haven't come across that as much. Honestly, where we see a lot of excitement and traction around Pulsar are with users that have maybe found some limitations in existing systems like Apache Kafka, or they're looking for a unified system, or they're looking for a use case solution that is really leveraging some of the features and functionality that Apache Pulsar was created for, namely zero data loss, fast and durable type storage, geo-replication for sure, and multi-tenancy. Interesting. So the really the the use case that you're going for is the durability and accessibility of the messages that are being written to that queue that's correct and in you know if we take a step back and why are we excited about this space if you look at typical enterprise architectures now you tend to see you know large data stores that could be hadoop that could be a data lake that could be this we like to call era of slow data solution, where data is, is simply stored, and in our in our strong opinion, that the value of that data decreases over time. The most exciting data in enterprise is the most recent data that allows use cases like 
real-time re- real-time enrichment of data that 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 is returned back to the user. So real-time interaction with customers. And so as a result, there's been new systems like messaging and streaming systems that are trying to access that real-time and streaming use case. But then that data is then offloaded onto, say, a data lake or different databases. What Pulsar allows is this almost unification of real-time and stored data. It's the unification of messaging and storage. And so really, we're able to look at data as simply data. We're not looking at data as data in motion and data at rest, because what we're really doing is unifying that. And and that's at the core of why we're excited about Pulsar as a system, because we're no longer talking about, you know, simply a messaging system or simply PubSub. We're actually allowed to go after use cases that are really looking at what and application developers want, which is, I just want my data. I want enriched data in in a streaming fashion in real time, but also accessing historical data. And that's really what what we get excited about and and use cases that that need that in in an enterprise grade fashion. So you know, zero data loss. It's not an okay solution. It was it was really architected and designed from day one to solve these core enterprise use cases. So Kafka does Kafka have? I mean, does because I th- I think Kafka does retain all that event data that is written to Kafka, but maybe does it does it write it to disk more often? Is it uh, is it slower to access than in Pulsar? It's definitely slower to access, and we have benchmarks, third party benchmarks through GigaOM and and a project called Open Messaging that that includes a benchmark, but not. Only is it it's slower, but there is a, a configurable time to live, right? And so you're basically con- configuring the length of time that you want the, the data to exist in the system because you can't have an infinite queue. So what we're finding with, with users of Kafka that may be having problems with Kafka is this idea of needing to buffer up the amount of data that they really need. And so let's say they want three days worth of data, they have to buffer up that amount of data, you know, to say seven days, just to allow a, a, a no data loss type of solution. And so, with with Pulsar, it's very simple to add nodes as needed, and so it allows us to lower the total cost of ownership, both through higher throughput, easier operations, and this idea of uh, you know when or if an issue occurs, you can simply add on nodes at the time that it's needed scale up the system because it's very simple to do when that event is over it could be planned you know again like the super bowl or it could be unplanned you know call it for you know maybe a data center goes down or if there's you know some issue on the application side where data needs to buffer up with other systems uh, again you know as users are considering a, a change from their system to pulsar those are the the issues that that we hear about most often and that's that's really where we're excited that Pulsar solves these, you know, day one. I see. So that infinite queuing idea. So I think the idea is if I connect a new application to my event bus and this event queuing system, and we're talking about either, you know, Pulsar or Kafka or Nats or whatever it is, sometimes you're going to want to replay every single event from the beginning of time in order to get this new system up to date. And if you don't have all of that data 
in the queuing system, then you're not able to do that, and you would have to reload it from S3 or from some other data lake that you have all your events stored in. So are you saying that in Pulsar, by default, you have all of this data just saved, That's it's just sitting in the queuing system in Apache Bookkeeper? So this is where that idea, Jeff, of tiered storage comes in. And so rather than having it sit in Bookkeeper, which you can, you know, you could obviously scale up the system and, and have data sitting in, in Bookkeeper if you wanted your, your Bookkeeper cluster to grow that large. But with tiered storage, what you're allowed to do is, is behind the scenes, you know, offload data that is, is beyond that configured period and store that in a more cost-efficient manner. And so that data can be stored in S3, but accessed through the same streaming APIs as if the data was in the same system. And so really we're, we're getting to the idea of, of just accessing data and your application developer does not need to know where that data is sitting. Really the data could be sitting, you know, three, five, 10 <laughs> days or months in, in a bookkeeper cluster if that's needed, but if you want to replay data from the beginning of time, as you said, and you had tiered storage configured into S3, for example, then you're able to access you know, all of that data and the data in Bookkeeper seamlessly. And so the key point there is that we're abstracting away where the data is residing, and we're not limited to the, the smallest disk, for example, with it, which is a core limitation we've discovered with other systems. And that's really where that that sophistication of Apache Bookkeeper and true stream storage is coming from. The segment-based architecture is taking the same logical view, and so an append-only log storage replicated system, but on the physical side, what it's doing is using segment-based storage, and what that allows us to do is very efficiently um, store older data in whatever storage in a tiered fashion the user needs. So does Kafka have a tiered storage model? Honestly, I do not think so, but that that would be left to a, a, a Kafka expert. There is ways to unload data, obviously, from Kafka into S3 or any other database, but to access it again, uh, the application developer needs to reload that data into Kafka and then access data uh, as if it was in Kafka. And so that... That actually came up as a as a request uh, for for large Kafka users that were asking for this idea of saying, you know, yes, we we love streaming paradigm and streaming data, but there's actually limitations, and those limitations come out on the architectural side, and those architectural issues are exactly what Pulsar was created to solve. Hmm. What about the cloud provider solutions, Google? Cloud PubSub and Kinesis. Sure. So PubSub, we're, we're, Google PubSub, we're familiar with because it comes up quite often. What we have found with PubSub is is ordering, especially geo-replicated ordering, becomes uh, questionable. And definitely on the on the cost side, we have a a significant cost reduction compared to Google PubSub um, and Kinesis as well. So Kinesis does have uh, a tiered storage type of functionality called VCR. And so the VCR Kinesis functionality is, is something that, you know, is very, is very similar in some ways to tiered storage. And what's nice about that is Kinesis really doesn't expose where it's storing the data or, or, or how it is, is allowing users to, to replace streams. 
And so against kinesis, and especially uh, the, the most common pattern we see is kinesis to lambda or even SQS to lambda. We see enterprises using kinesis, uh, SQS, lambda, maybe SMS, a lot of different systems. And so what we deliver on is, is ease of use there. We're actually combining multiple different systems and deliver that on a much lower cost. And I think the the bigger picture of what you're building at Streamlio is not just a system with Pulsar. So Pulsar is just one component of it. So Pulsar is the messaging pub-sub queuing component of a larger system for queuing and processing the data that is queued. So there are these varieties of streaming systems. So we had this, I think two or three years ago, there was just this huge swarm of streaming systems where you had Spark, Spark Streaming, Storm, Heron from Twitter, which I think is what you use at Streamlio. And the purpose of a streaming system is to be able to read in these high volumes of data and process them at in a, in a, in a distributed fashion. So you've got this this architectural pattern where you have all of these this high volume of events that are being queued up and then you have a streaming system that processes batches of events that come in or maybe they process each event that comes in one by one. Twitter Heron is what you are using for that that stream processing. Explain what Heron does. Sure. So, so you're absolutely correct that, you know, at, at the Streamlio level, and, and this goes back to actually one of your earlier questions around microservices, there is a, a, a directed acyclic graph, a, a DAG pattern of, of stream processing that was pioneered by Storm. Well, there are systems before it, but, but really a, lar- a, lar- a wider adoption system was Storm. And within Twitter, uh, at Twitter size data and, and demands, there was actually a lot of architectural issues that came up with uh, Storm. So Storm was open sourced by Twitter, but then replaced within Twitter by Heron. And so Heron, really what it, what it did was solve a number of those operational issues at scale and was open sourced by Twitter about two years ago and uh, was recently added to uh, Apache as an incubating project back in March. And so what Heron does is a distributed stream processing system that can read data from any any number of messaging or queuing systems, join and uh, enrich that data together and, and, and be able to do large sta- large scale aggregations, you know, things like counting up um, hashtags in tweets or running all real time compute and advertising at, at Twitter scale. And so you're absolutely right that uh, a few years ago, there was a number of stream processing systems that came out. But what we're actually seeing with with customers and and wider adoption of streaming systems is that Heron does solve large-scale use cases very well. You know, so Twitter-scale use cases will require systems like Heron. But what we actually found with prospects and, and customers is that Heron and larger scale real-time compute systems were actually a bit heavyweight for the use cases that, that, that are really going into production now. And so that very simple augmentation use case from Fitbit that you described, it's definitely possible to solve that with Heron and, and be able to augment that data with existing connectors in the Heron system itself. 
But what we've done is actually simplify that down and be able to leverage uh, Pulsar functions and do that in a stream-native manner. And so what we're finding is that, yes, you know, Heron is an exciting system and, and part of the Streamlio platform, but really large, you know, large banks, um, IoT use cases and social media uh, mobile companies at Twitter scale are really excited about, you know, our capabilities on Heron, especially Heron on Kubernetes. You know, as you see the, the enterprises adopt Kubernetes, this is the perfect solution for extremely large scale stream processing. But what we also found was we wanted to be appealing to enterprises at all levels. And so that's where, you know, definitely Heron is, is possible from a stream processing perspective. But we're actually very excited about Pulsar Functions that's able to not only do the stream native compute use cases, but also the ingestion, ingestion and writing of data. So connectors based on Pulsar Functions and a very simple system. So as you can see, the use cases around queuing and streaming linked to Apache Pulsar are growing. And while we have, you know, real-time compute and a, a true stream processing engine in Heron, you know, we have found, quite frankly, that that's very appealing to extremely large enterprises, but more efficiently solved, you know, very simply, lower total cost of ownership, smaller team with Pulsar and Pulsar functions. And the... So I, I was just at KubeCon in Copenhagen, and one of the things that makes me pretty optimistic about companies that are selling to enterprises, so vendors that are software vendors that are selling to enterprises, is there is so first of all, there's so many enterprises that want to buy this stuff, right? Like, and and there's a huge variety of of flavors of those enterprises. There's banks, there's oil companies, there's consumer packaged goods companies there's startups that may not have a core competency in in software engineering so they're looking for a solution that is you know easier to use for them and then in the kubernetes world you just see this thousand flowers well not thousands but there's a lot of vendors and there's space for all these vendors because the economics of being a vendor are are quite good if you know if you can establish yourself with a with an enterprise and build a relationship with that enterprise they're probably not ever going to take out your your enterprise you know your your software solution that you've uh, that you've made for them so I'm really curious when because when I walk around these expo halls at these conferences, it is so interesting seeing the different positioning, the marketing. Like, I mean, I know a lot of people listening to this don't really care about marketing, but if you're ever in a if you're ever in a position where you're buying enterprise software for your company, you will care about the marketing, and you're going to walk around one of these expo halls and you're going to see fifty different Kubernetes vendors offering what sounds like the same thing, and you're going to scratch scratch your head and be like, "What the heck am I doing?" So. It sounds like I think at Streamlio you have a little bit less competition than perhaps the managed Kubernetes provider market, but there are competitors. There are a variety of these pub sub and streaming solution providers. Tell me about the go-to-market strategy. How do you position yourself? How do you make yourself more accessible to the right enterprises? How do you find your customers? Sure, that's a that's a great that's a great question, Jeff. Because it, you know it's definitely crowded, mainly because the number of use cases around streaming, to some extent, real time, but but really streaming, are exploding. You know, there's different industries that want to access streaming data in in a real time fashion, and 
what we're finding is that enterprises want to deliver value on both real-time and streaming data and re-engineer their architecture to be more microservices oriented, more flexible, and, and gone are the days of applications that are difficult to scale and are difficult to scale with independent components. And so where we see, and and really the vision of Streamlio when we first started was the idea that accessing fast data is too complicated. It's too complicated for small enterprises, especially, but it's also very complicated and almost impossible for large enterprises that maybe can't hire out uh, an entire platform team to stitch together, you know, perhaps a number of different open source and proprietary and maybe even custom solutions and integrate that into, you know, their, their, their enterprise roadmap somehow. And so, being able to deliver an intelligent, fast data platform to enterprises of all sizes is really where we've positioned Streamlio and, and the vision of, of we're taking uh, Streamlio as a company. And so the go-to-market strategy and, and where we find uh, a number of customers, you know, in the beginning, we, we actually believe that the stream processing and compute piece would, would actually resonate with existing stream processing users and a number of different features of, say, Pulsar and Bookkeeper would would be useful in, in that solution. So again, in, in the reality uh, of, of what we saw in the vendor space was a number of vendors that were stitching together, you know, kind of open source or proprietary pieces that, that really weren't really weren't making fast data easy and seamless. And so what we ended up finding was that there were a number of different issues that we began discovering with uh, users of, of different systems. And so enterprises that were having existing problems with, you know, say Kafka became really interested in, in Pulsar, especially around zero data loss, multi-tenancy, and geo-replication in particular in open source say compared to Mirror Maker, or we know there's a, a startup behind Kafka that, that has a proprietary piece for geo-replication. And then definitely on, on greenfields, you know, as you mentioned, uh, walking around KubeCon and, and Expos, you see a number of vendors in this space, but, but really it's around the opportunity and value uh, of fast data. And we do see that um, you know, at Streamlio, where we believe this this idea of of slow data is ending, and every enterprise needs an answer to how how are we as an enterprise going to access that value of fast data. And so, what we have found uh, is that a managed solution, uh, really a multi cloud solution, but a managed solution is where enterprises want to begin with, and long term, their roadmap definitely has one cloud provider at a minimum, but you know more often we're seeing multi-cloud providers in addition to an on-prem solution. So you know we think the the future for hybrid cloud is very bright and hybrid cloud solutions definitely need uh, a messaging layer to move data between each of those platforms and then within each platform geo-replicated as well, which is again a perfect enterprise day one use case for for pulsar. And so managed solution and, and long-term, we have seen a lot of excitement around a SaaS offering. Internally, that, that is a, internal in the system, that is a multi-tenant solution. And so leveraging that and delivering direct cost savings back to enterprises looking for a cheaper alternative to access fast data is definitely exciting. 
and then all the way to the edge. And we have gotten into the conversation of what the edge actually means, but in our minds, you know, an edge cluster, so a cluster that exists geographically nearer to the edge and, and aggregating data, what we are seeing is, uh, you know, Kubernetes deployments or even standalone modes. We, we do integrate with Nomad, for example, um, at the edge. But this idea of a fast data fabric that connects edge to on-prem to a multi-cloud hybrid deployment is, is where we're seeing enterprises know that their roadmap must take them. And Streamly is perfectly positioned to start out very simply either on-prem or, or in a managed solution type of deployment, but, but also perfectly positioned for the hybrid you know, data fabric type of deployment that, that we see use cases developing both now and, and kind of exploding in the future. All right. Well, I'm glad we got to edge computing as well. We, we've ticked all of the <laughs> software engineering daily buzzword bingo <laughs> but not that not that edge computing is a buzzword i mean it's it's i mean this topic fascinates me and and the the question of how you shuttle data and communicate data between these endpoints that are maybe on the ocean or you know across an oil rig and there's variable levels of connectivity but the volume of data is extremely high this is a a, a large greenfield set of problems, and I'm looking forward to seeing how you're going to tackle it. Exactly. I mean, again, Jeff, this this is where lightweight compute and pulsar functions fits in perfectly. And so, you know, having a a pulsar cluster running at the edge, pulsar functions are running on the existing brokers, so it's not a separate cluster that needs to be managed. And so, the common use case at the edge let's call it in connected cars and the edge are Wi-Fi towers, is the idea of filtering down data. And so there's too much data at the edge to send everything back to an on-prem cluster. And so let's say you want to step down and filter out that data, you know, one-tenth or one-one-hundredth. That's a perfect use case for lightweight compute and stream-native computing and pulsar functions. And, and really one of the reasons of why we developed it the way that we did to have an extremely light footprint very easy to manage operationally, and then the uh, a pulsar node, you know, pulsar edge node, again fits into the multi-tenant uh, requirement, and so that multi-tenant requirement simply, you know, is an edge uh, tenant that you're able to spin up and spin down from the main cluster. You know, connect seamlessly. We don't see geo-replication needs at the edge just yet, but that's definitely a possibility if it's needed. But again, you're, you're seeing that for IoT use cases, Pulsar functions and Pulsar in general are leveraging all these great functionality that it was created for as a day one requirement at Yahoo. All right. Well, Louis Kaneshiro, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really great talking to you. Thanks so much for the time, Jeff. Uh, and, and thanks again for your interest in Streamlio and, and Pulsar. Wow.